we are in week two of a series called Dear Synergy. And let me kind of give you the premise of this uh, series. Um, there's a book of the Bible called Revelation. It's written by a man named John, who was actually one of Jesus' disciples. And while he was exiled to an island called Patmos, he was given a revelation from God, and he was told to record the revelation and send it to these churches. Uh, so in this book, chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters that are written to seven different churches, okay? And these churches are Jesus' voice to these churches. Um, he gives them commendations. He, like, commends them for things that they're doing really well. And then he gives them some corrections, things that they're not doing well, things that don't please him. He says, you know, this needs to change. This is unacceptable. And so what we're doing as a church is saying, um, you know, what if Jesus were to write us a letter? Obviously, it would probably be by email. And so he would write us an email. And in that email, would we find commendations? Would he commend us for things? Would he tell us that we're doing great at certain things? Or would he give us corrections? Or would he do both? And as we became like really honest as a church and just saying, Jesus, we want to know how we can have a game plan going forward to really please you and do what you say, the most logical thing for us to do is to look at these seven letters. And so we're looking at one letter per week over these seven weeks. And we're seeing in these letters that Jesus shows us what he longs for in his church. He encourages churches for things they're doing well. And those are things that we should say, well, we should probably do those things. And then he corrects some churches for things they're not doing well. And so those are things that we should probably say we shouldn't do that. And we should make sure that that's not part of our church. So that's kind of the heart behind this series. Um, now let me make it kind of a little more practical. Um, I was watching a show called Undercover Boss. Anybody ever watch Undercover Boss? Great show, sometimes. Sometimes it's better than others. But I was watching this particular episode. And it was a CEO for uh, a a fitness facility. I think it was Retro Fitness. Um, I think it was uh, like a franchising organization where he would allow people to franchise in and they would have their own fitness gyms called Retro Fitness. Uh, they would have their own store managers or store owners, but he was still the CEO of the company. And so what Undercover Boss is, is someone high up in the organization, the CEO, the vice president, they go undercover and they act as if they're being hired into various roles in their own organizations. And so it gives them an idea to see what's going on on the front lines instead of in the main offices. And so then they kind of follow up with these people and they give them feedback based on what they experienced as a new employee in this organization. And uh, so I was watching this episode and uh, this CEO disguised himself as a new employee and he went to work and he shows up and there's a girl named Jacqueline behind the desk at this fitness facility. Okay, now Jacqueline is like, she's running the desk, so new people come in, she's checking them in, members are coming in, and she's checking them in, people want information, she's, she's the one to go to, she's fixing like protein shakes, energy drinks, all this kind of stuff, so she's kind of like the representative for this gym, and this CEO goes into this gym as a new employee, and she starts dropping F-bombs in front of him, she starts like slamming the members She's like, I just can't stand these people. They're the most ignorant people in the world. They don't even know what they're asking for when they come up here. And she's just like letting these people go. And I'm getting excited because I know that there's going to come a time where he's going to sit in front of her undisguised and say, by the way, I'm the CEO and I got some things to say to you. 
And so, I mean, he has like perfected, as the CEO of this company, they've perfected like ingredients for their shakes and protein drinks and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, yeah, that's kind of the list that we should go by, but I make them better because those are stupid and like the people don't like them. And so I just make them better. And he's like, so you don't think that we should go by this list? And she's just like, she's like, no, no one goes by the book, blah, blah, blah. I mean, she's just, she's in for it. And so we get to the end of the show and he walks in and reveals, hey, I'm actually not Barry, but I'm the CEO of this company. And her demeanor kind of like, well, I can see that in your eyes, but she didn't realize what was about to happen to her. And because she wasn't a direct employee of his, as a CEO, it was a franchise corporation, she had her own boss. And she still, when he revealed who she was and he told her, like, that is unacceptable in my organization. You can't talk about our members. You can't represent yourself that way, blah, blah, blah. She's, he's, like, giving her up the road. And she's still, like, thinking it's not a big deal. She's being, like, you know, just rude to him. And I'm thinking, you know, this is not good. So he says, well, you know what? I want to invite Bob in. Bob is her direct boss. And when Bob walks into the room, her demeanor changed 100%. And obviously, you know the story that he lets her go. You can't represent our company that well. And she goes out crying and, you know, cussing again, dropping F-bombs. I guess that's what she does. That's what makes her happy. Um, I thought it was really funny. At the very end, like the very end when the credits are rolling, they show like what these employees are doing now. And she went to work for an elderly care facility. (laughs) It's going to work out real great for her. Uh, Anyway, I thought, here the CEO, the, the owner, the creator of this entire organization got to experience firsthand a poor performance, something that he would have never dreamed would take place in his organization. And I wonder sometimes if Jesus, who gave his life for the church, sometimes looks at these churches, at our church, at other churches, and maybe is just a little disappointed. Maybe just thinks you're completely missing the point. That's not what this is all about. And so I've just been asking Jesus to kind of speak to us and give us a game plan going forward so that we can operate our church in such a way that would make him proud. You know, there were other employees that this CEO was super excited about. He like gave them bonuses. I mean, he like rewarded them greatly because they did such a great job. And I think that God has really big things in store for our church. I really do. You say, of course you do. You planted the church. You want it to to grow and do well. And yeah, that's true too. But I really feel like we're kind of on the cusp of something great. And I don't want to define what great looks like. Rather than trying to say, you know, great is so many people attending on a Sunday or so many people serving or so much money given. I want to say, God, will you just help us to do what you've called us to do and accept whatever comes as great? And if that's our case, then we've got to have some starting points. And for us, the starting point in this series are these letters to the churches in Revelation. So today, we're going to look at a letter to the church in Smyrna. Um, Four of the churches, four of the seven churches, had both positive things and negative things that Jesus said about them. You're doing these things great, but you've got to work on some things. Or this is completely not acceptable, and you're doing all right in some things. Two of the churches are churches that he only commends. Smyrna is one of them. Only good things to say. He doesn't say, you need to work on this, you need to tweak this, you need to fix this. He says, I'm proud of you. I know these certain things about you, and you're doing a great job. 
And then he gives them some encouragement to go along with it. And then one church, the last church that we're going to look at, Laodicea, he's only got bad things to say about. And so we definitely don't want to be that church. Uh, but as I was reading this letter this week and thinking about uh, our time together, I thought how many times we want to be that church. Like we want Jesus to look down at us and say only good things, right? Don't we want to be that church? We don't want Jesus to look down and say, hey, you're missing the mark and you need to fix some things. You need to tighten some things up. We want him to say, you're doing an incredible job. Keep going. You're going to keep doing great things. And so what we're going to find is sometimes there's a cost that's paid by churches to be that church. And so today we're going to kind of ask the question, do we really want to be that church at the end of the day? So here we go, the letter to the church at Smyrna. I'm just going to read it through, and then we'll come back and talk about some points. This is Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation is the last book in your Bible, so turn to the end if you aren't familiar. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse number 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. This isn't just some historical figure, not just some prophet, not just some great teacher. This is the king of the universe that overcame death and raised himself to life victorious. This is an incredible author writing this letter. Verse number nine, I know your afflictions. Some versions say tribulations. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. We love that encouragement. Thank you, Jesus. Like, that's what you want from me. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Smyrna was a city, a village, a town, about 35 miles north of Ephesus that we looked at last week. And, and here's kind of the deal with Smyrna. Smyrna in Smyrna, there was a, a group of Jews who had opposed this Christian church. And because the Jews didn't really have authority and power to punish or stop the movement of the Christians, what they did was, was they started reporting to the Romans some things that were malicious to say about these Christians. And so the Romans would come in in response to things like, you know, they're saying that they serve a king other than Caesar. And of course the Romans were like, well, you can't serve any king other than Caesar. And so they would come and they would arrest them. They would persecute them. They would try to keep them from going forth or having an impact. They would cut off some of their supplies. And so this church had been through a lot. They had been talked bad about. Some might have been partially true, but a lot of it would have been false accusations. So they would have been trying to do really good things, but having a group of people oppose them. And then they would have, they would have seen people in their church arrested. They would have seen people in their church persecuted, mistreated, talked bad about. This would have been a church that would have, from the outside looking in, seemed beat down on some level. Yet this is a church that Jesus looks at and says, I'm so proud of you because you haven't backed down. You haven't stepped away from your calling. You haven't given in to the pressure. You know, so many times we try to avoid conflict, even in our own personal lives. 
when, when there's ever a possibility of conflict, sometimes we just try to shrink back and say, well, I'm not going to say that or do that or go that way or make that decision because of the negative impact that it could have. But this church stood firmly for what Jesus had called them to do, and Jesus was super, super proud of them. He says, I know that, uh, I know your afflictions. I know that you've experienced some hard times. I know that you've been through rough times and I see your poverty like you're poor like you don't have a lot I can relate to that as a church planner he says yet in spite of your afflictions and in spite of your poverty you're rich like you may not see it but you have some great things going for you and so he's in a way saying I relate to you I can see where you're at but on the other hand he's saying you need to know that you are far more rich than a lot of other churches. And he begins to say good things about them. Now, here's the difficult task for me as a pastor in Winder, Georgia, in the year 2013. We don't have people imprisoned in our church. No one's arresting us for preaching the gospel. No one's stalking us out for being here on a Sunday morning and looking to find us at fault and false accusations. We're not really dealing with a lot of that. And so on some level, we would say, well, this letter doesn't really apply to us. And so there's not a lot for us to learn. But I think that there's, there's a ton that we can learn from this letter. We just have to have a different perspective because here's the thing that stands out to me the most about the source of the conflict and, and the turmoil that this church went through is that it was religious people that instigated it. Like it wasn't necessarily the Romans that Jesus says, you know, these people far from me who, you know, are blaspheming my name, you know, they're the source of it. He's saying, you know, these Jews who are a synagogue of Satan, like these religious people, these people who have it all together in the public's eye, these, these people who have things figured out and have respect of people in their communities like they're the ones instigating the persecution and you guys may not see it maybe you do but there's a lot of religious turmoil that takes place in the church world especially here in America and most of the opposition in today's society here in America that's received by the church comes from other churches or other religious institutions. I know that's sad, but I think that that's a way that we can relate to this church at Smyrna. And so Jesus sees that they're dealing with this persecution that's being instigated by respected religious leaders. And he says, I understand, I know your afflictions and here's, here's the thing that we can take comfort in as we move forward is that when Jesus says, I know your afflictions, I know that you are in poverty, he's not necessarily saying, like, I have the knowledge, like, it's been made aware to me that you're being persecuted, that you have afflictions, that you're poor. He's saying, like, I know, like, I've been there. And I got to thinking about Jesus this week, and who was it that had Jesus crucified? It was the religious leaders. It was those that had the respect of the people who had everything figured out and all together. They were the ones that was opposing what Jesus wanted to do in the earth. And so when he says, I know your afflictions and you're rich, we can take comfort in the fact that we're serving a God 
that set an example for us that shows us how we can endure these hardships for his sake. And so in light of the fact that we don't have traditional persecution, I want to tell you three stories or give you three examples of times that I personally or our church or a church that I was a part of experienced a type of persecution from within the church or within religious organizations. Is that okay? So I just want to kind of make this um, very practical for us. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to share any examples from our church because our church is perfect and this would never happen in our church. We would never experience any kind of anything like that. Um, About two years after Lindsay and I were married, I was a student pastor at a church over in Watkinsville and uh, we had about 100, 125 kids and things were going great. And uh, one day in my mailbox, uh, sometimes I'm thankful that we don't have a church office because I don't have a mailbox to get things like this. Um, that's, a, that's a good thing sometimes. Uh, but I get this letter that's addressed to Grace Fellowship, um, and it says on it, Attention, Lindsey Crawford. And on the back, again, highlighted before I opened it, Attention, Lindsey Crawford. And so as a proud youth pastor, I thought my wife has gotten some encouraging mail, and I'm going to give this to her, and it's going to make her day and so I was excited all day to give it to her. I just, I thought about opening it and I said, I'm not going to open her mail. I wish I would have. So I give her this letter and I just sit back and watch her open it and she's just in tears and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And she just throws a letter at me. Storms out of the room. I want to read that letter to you. Can I do that? I asked her permission to read this. She didn't know I still had the letter. Why do you still have the letter? I said, because I knew one day I'd be able to share this. This is what it says. And, and listen, churches are sometimes complex organizations. Okay? Sometimes churches fail to do things that they should do. Uh, they step on people's feet or hurt people's feelings, not intentionally, so things can go wrong. As someone who's been in leadership in the church world, I can tell you that there's no perfect church out there. And as soon as you find it, it's not going to be perfect anymore. That goes for me too. Uh, So with that context, let me read this, not bashing anyone. It's um, just so that we can understand some things together. Lindsay Crawford. How proper is that? I just wanted to bring something to your attention. I'm sure that you are a very nice young lady, which if you know my wife is true. But I'm afraid that other people are not seeing that. This is what gets me. About a year ago, so a year before you decided to write this letter, about a year ago, there was a weekend event for the youth and a few girls were attending who were new. From what I heard, you didn't even speak to them. The family was considering our church, but I have not seen them since. I think it's very important, especially in your position, youth pastor's wife. That's something that people aspire to be, right? (laughs) Especially in your position, that you reach out to as many kids as possible. I've seen you many times at church, and you don't even smile or say hello. I'm not trying to offend you in any way. My hope is to let you know that you are not coming across friendly to others, and it's important to teens that they have a good example and someone they feel like they can talk to if needed. No one is perfect. This is proof. I have many faults and have a long way to go. Hopefully we'll allow God to change us all for his glory. Thank you, your sister in Christ. Now, 
Let me point out something before I talk about this letter. It's written by your sister in Christ, and uh, there's no return address, okay? So let me educate you a little bit here, just in case you ever decide to send me some mail. There's no return address, and you're my brother or sister in Christ, and your name's not on it. It's going in the trash, and I'm going to read it in front of people and talk about you. Um, (laughs) Maybe this person will listen to this podcast. Maybe they're here. I don't know. Um, So, I mean, come on. let's, Let's talk about this. A year ago, you did something really silly, Lindsay, and I'm going to make a huge deal about it. I'm not going to come to you and talk to you as the Bible teaches. I'm just going to write you this anonymous letter about something that happened a year ago. But I just want you to know there's a family that's not in church today, and it's all your fault. And you need to fix that. Now, to me, this is funny because if you know my wife, um, this is far from who she is as someone who's not friendly and doesn't talk to people. Okay? Maybe she didn't talk to someone. I don't know. Here's what I have found, though. I have found that some people have the spiritual gift of complaint. And (laughs) they feel sometimes inspired to make sure that no one gets a big head by letting them know that they noticed an imperfection in their life. And they want to make sure that there's no conflict, so they're going to write it anonymously so that you can never reply to them or defend yourself. Um, And we obviously don't have any of those people at our church, so this doesn't apply to us. But I just want to give an example that sometimes the persecution that we face in life comes from within our own church family. When we're going about our business and someone brings something up from the past, which they may have a reason to bring something up from the past, but they bring something up from the past and they tell you how bad you are or what a bad job you've done, and their goal is not to mend fences or to help you, truth be told. Their goal is to be heard. They just want to be heard. And so... um, Actually, I'm going to create an email address for for people who love to complain because sometimes it just feels good to complain, okay? I'm going to be honest. Um, And I'm probably going to call it something like get over it at synergychurch.cc or something like that. And then people can just send this email. I mean, they can just talk about everything they want to talk about and it'll feel good about themselves. But here's what I want us to understand is that if we allow ourselves to approach Life, especially in church, from the standpoint of finding fault in people and pointing that fault out, then we're going to have an awful church. Because can I just be honest with you? You got a lot of bad things that you could say about me. You do. I mean, you could start and keep going for days and never stop. And I would probably read it and I would probably get depressed. And then I would take that email down and not let you keep sending your complaints. Inside the church, we need to be unified. We need to build one another up. We need to encourage one another. And if there's things that need to be talked about that have been mishandled, then we need to go to people face-to-face and have a conversation in love and say, I've noticed something. You know, if this person would have come, and I have ideas of who it is, like in my mind, I think, I bet I know who that was, and I would just like to, but I don't. (laughs) If they would have just come to Lindsay and say, hey, like, This past weekend, like two days ago, 
I heard that there were some girls, and maybe you didn't talk to them. I don't know if you did or not, but they were a little discouraged. And probably what would have happened? You think Lindsay would have probably said, had no clue that happened. She would have probably called these girls, and she would have probably said, hey, would you like to get together for some ice cream? Can we hang out? Just want you to know that I am so sorry that I didn't speak to you. Instead, my loving wife, who's called to support me in ministry, spent weeks trying to figure out who wrote this letter and trying to say, what kids didn't I speak to? And, you know, she's just trying to juggle things in her mind. Crazy. Story number two. Again, as a student pastor, I had um, these services that I would call student impact services, and we would really encourage our students to go out into the community and their schools, invite a lot of people to church for these special one-night events. And uh, the whole goal of the event would be evangelism. And I would tell our students, look, you invite anybody that you can get to come. You know, we're going to feed them. We're going to play some fun games and give away some awesome prizes. And I'm going to just flat out tell them about Jesus. And we're just going to pray together that people will come to know Jesus. And so that's what we would do. And we would have these events. And people would come to know Jesus. And it was awesome. People got fired up about them. And we had this one such event. And at this one such event, I was speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus for us and the debt that he paid for us and how he died on the cross for our sins and how brutal it was. And I had this thought that I ran by, I had a a group of volunteer staff that I ran by and said, do you guys think, what do you think about this? There's going to be middle schoolers in the room. I want to show this clip from the Passion of the Christ. Like a minute and a half, two minutes of the sacrifice that he made for us just so that they can feel and see and relate to what he did for us. It's not just a story, it's real. He went through this for us. I think it'll be great. Let's do it. And we prayed about it. We showed this video. Six kids got saved that night. We were on top of the world. On top of the world. The next Monday or Tuesday, I forget, I get a phone call from the front office. So-and-so is here to see you. Would you come? I come down to see this person. And uh, they have called a meeting with another staff member and I and put me into the situation. What's going on? How are you doing? And just let me have it up one side and down the other because they don't allow their daughter to watch R-rated movies. And they haven't shown this movie to their kid. And how dare I undercut their parenting authority and scar their children for life? They're going to have nightmares for weeks and months. Now listen, I don't want to be insensitive, okay? Because... Maybe for that parent, that's not something they wanted their their kid to see. Okay, so I was like, I'm so sorry. Had no clue. I learned a lesson. Let's be honest, I learned a lesson. You know, middle schoolers, young kids, if you're going to show something like that, maybe you want to give some some warning. I don't know. In my mind, though, I'm thinking, like, just so you know, like, there were a group of adults, we talked about this, and they all were on the same page, two of which have kids, your kid's age, and I don't know if you heard this, but like six people gave their lives to Christ. Like it was a, a huge night. It was a great night. Well, that's good and all, but here we go again for another 10, 15 minutes. You're just a terrible leader. You have no judgment. You know, you lack uh, the leadership necessary to lead our kids. I think it's just awful, blah, 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 blah. And kind of pits their friend, staff member against me and puts them in a really awkward situation. Now, 
Right or wrong, whether I should have done it or not, it's not the issue today. I'm not here to say passion of the Christ is something you should show to middle schoolers. Would it have been different if this parent would have come to me personally and just said, hey, can I just share something with you? Can I just let you know, like, we haven't showed our kids. I was a little disappointed that our middle schooler saw that and just want you to know, like, for future reference, like, there's, there's some of us that we may have, like, a little stricter guidelines for our kids, and I just want to let you know about that. Because at the end of the day, is there anything that could be said or done to go back and change what happened? No. Okay, so the only thing to be done is to criticize, critique, tear down, or to say something that could prevent something like that in the future for their kid. So I walked into this meeting and I just left, just defeated. Here's six kids, a day before, two days before, came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They moved from death to life. They entered into the family of God and I was on top of the world. I was telling everybody about it. And I went home for a week just depressed. Lost all my victory and felt like I was the worst person on the planet. Never really had a conversation with, like, with that from someone outside of the church to that level, criticizing me. I've had some people outside the church that didn't care for what we were doing or had some bad things to say, but, but never a personal attack that just wanted me to, to be defeated. And then most recent story I'll share with you is when we felt called to plant this church here. And... We didn't know very many people in Winder, and God had called us here, and we were confident of that, and we had resolved that, and we had let people know that's what was going to happen. And I got this Facebook message. You notice that these are never like genuine, honest, face-to-face conversations. I love you and want to help you. Telling me that I was no fit for Winder, Georgia. Have you been to the Walmart in Winder? You are totally not going to fit in with these people. And they'll never listen to anything you're going to say. And I looked at this message. I mean, it went on and on. And I'm not going to say everything that was said. But it went on and on. And I was just like, like, what does it matter to you if I plant a church in Winder, Georgia? When you're never going to come to my church. And you don't live in Winder, Georgia. Yet there's this call of God in some people's lives to complain, to be negative, to cause division, to stir things up, to speak their mind, to feel good about themselves by tearing other people down. And it's within the church. It's within the church. And so the first thing that I think we can learn from this letter, if we're going to be a church that pleases God, that if he wrote us an email, sent us a letter, would say he's proud of us is we've got to make sure that that doesn't happen in our church. That we don't allow all this slander is the word that was used, this malicious talk, this going behind someone's back and saying things, whether it's true or not, with an intent to harm, it's just unacceptable in God's church, in Jesus' church. He didn't give his life for a group of people who were so selfish and ego-centered, that they want to tear people down. He gave his life so that people would give their lives for others, would show that love and that hope that they've found in him. And so I want to encourage us to make sure 
And listen, there's going to be times where you have an issue, where you have something that gets under your skin or something is mishandled or someone didn't think something through. I get it. I get it. Don't send an anonymous letter. Don't call a confrontational meeting with your guns ready to fire. In love, quickly, follow up with someone with a heart to mend, with a heart to encourage, with a heart to make better. And we'll find that our church will grow stronger and stronger and stronger because of it. I know your afflictions. I know your hardship. I know that there's religious people inside the church, outside of the church, that have brought a lot of hardship to your life and have made it difficult for you to make progress as a church. I know. I've been there. Believe me, Jesus says. But you're going to make it. So the essence of this letter is him saying to the church at Smyrna, things are worse than they seem, yet things are better than they seem. Because what does he say? I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know that things are going rough, rough, but guess what? It's about to get a lot worse. You're about to face prison time. Some of you will be put in prison for, for 10 days. We don't know specifically why 10 days. A lot of Roman imprisonments were short term imprisonments because they would either die because of the torture or they would put them back on the streets because they didn't want to deal with them. Whatever the reason, he's saying, you're going to face some hard times. I love that it's 10 days though because you know that it's going to end. Like however long it's going to last, it's going to end and you're going to make it through. Things are worse than they seem, but listen, things are so much better than they seem. All you see is the affliction. All you see is the poverty. But listen, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. There are things that you have that I wish all my churches had. This wherewithal to stand up under this pressure and this hard time. This extreme love for people not to give in and shrink back so that you don't offend people, but to speak out and make your voice heard so that you can make a difference in the lives of others. You're rich. And so we take heart that Jesus says he's the first and the last. He was dead, but now he's alive because that's the God that, that we serve. And we know that there's worse things than death in this life. And there's worse things than being criticized. And there's worse things than facing poverty or hardships or whatever we'll ever experience as a church. And so I think for our church is to make sure that we don't allow things like personal preference, things like pride, things like tradition to stifle what God wants to do in the midst of us. But he wants us to be a selfless church that endures hard times together knowing that it's because of those very things that we're rich and we have God's stamp of approval. And then as he ends all of these letters, he gives us a, an encouragement with a promise. Let's go back and look at verse number 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's worse things than death. 
There's a second death. Revelation 20:14 tells us that this is the lake of fire. And that if we overcome, if we endure, then we won't be hurt by that. My grandfather told me actually just the other day he had a conversation with a man. And he asked the man, he said, he said, how many times have you been born? The man looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've always been told if you're born twice, you only die once. But if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. And the man understood. He was a Christian. And he said, he said, oh, I've been born twice, sir. I'm only going to die once. And he said, well, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, Scripture teaches us that we have a natural birth. We're born once. But then we need to be born again. There's a second birth, a spiritual birth. We see this in John chapter 3 when Jesus has a conversation with a religious leader. And he tells him that he must be born again. He's confused. How can I be born again? Do I enter my mother's womb a second time? And he says, no, you're born of the Spirit. It's a second birth. You receive the gift of my salvation, my sacrifice for you. You're born again. And if that's the case, then you're going to die once. You're going to die a natural death. You're going to spend eternity in heaven with Christ, enjoying your reward here on this earth in, for eternity. But if you're only born once, and you're never born again, and you live your life far from God, you never cross that line of salvation and you never experience a second birth, a regeneration, however theologically you want to speak about it. And there's two deaths for you. There'll be a natural death and there'll be an eternal death. The encouragement for us as a church is that we don't have to be hurt by the second death. And so I want to end our time by asking you a simple question. Like my grandfather asked this gentleman, how many times have you been born? Have you been born, born once? Do you have two deaths in your future? Or have you been born twice? You've only got one death in your future. As we started last week, I'm trying to teach us as a church that it's okay to respond to what we hear. It's okay to respond to the words that are preached after we hear God's word, that what we hear doesn't just have to be inspiring or challenging, that we leave and just kind of think about it, but we can, we can kind of respond on the spot to what God's speaking to our hearts. And, and this has been my prayer for today, is that there might be people here who may be in danger of being hurt by the second death. And maybe you see like some... Maybe in your words you would say some negative connotations to being a Christian. Maybe you say, well, if, if I become a Christian, then I lose my right to enjoy life or I don't get to experience things that I enjoy. And you kind of think, I want to enjoy this life. And you have no hope for an eternal life. And so my prayer for you this week has been that God would just speak to your heart. Scripture tells us that no man can come to Christ unless he's drawn by the Spirit. And so here's like a simple response for us. Nothing embarrassing. No one's like going to call you up on stage and interview you, anything crazy like that. But if you're here right now and you say, you know, I've, 
I've never been born again. I've never crossed that line. I've never surrendered my life to Jesus, to his sacrifice for me on the cross. And I just feel like today is my day to do that. Everybody's going to be looking around. I'm not, we don't like to do that whole bow your head and close your eyes. And we have this secret life with Jesus thing. But if that's you in a room full of people who came here this morning and set all this up with the hope that you would come to know Jesus, does anybody just want to be born again this morning? Would you just, just raise a hand? I'd like to be born again. I've never experienced that. I've never made Jesus my Lord. And today I want to. And I want to respond to what I've heard you say today. Anybody at all? Well, here's our prayer as we end our time together. Our prayer is that one day when we ask that question, we're going to see dozens, if not hundreds of hands go in the air. Because of the church that we've become, that's allowed people far from God to come to know him. So can I just pray as we end our time together? Thank God for where he's gotten us to. Ask him just to let us be that church where people will respond to the gospel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. Thank you for the words that you spoke about the church at Smyrna and how we can learn, Father, that there's a crown of life awaiting us if we endure hardship. And though it may seem like we're in poverty and we have affliction, Lord, we're rich. Thank you, Father, for your incredible blessings on our church and on every family and individual in our church. Father, I pray that we would be a church that you would be proud of, that you would be pleased with, that you would look upon with favor, that you would see a church that has your heart. And as we become that church, Father, sometimes there's not a lot of criticism until our voice is heard. Would you just give us a a backbone just to embrace your truth and embrace your love and never let it diminish or be sacrificed because of an ease or a lack of conflict? Just give us that backbone, Father. And let us be a church that when we stand up and ask people if they want to give their lives to you, Lord, that dozens and hundreds of people would respond and lives would be changed forever. And we would see an incredible harvest because of what you're doing in your church. Thank you that we'll be that church one day. And thank you, Father, for allowing us this incredible pleasure of partnering with you in life. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.